Hi everyone, my name is Chris and I'm host of the Stellar Spark Show. And in today's episode, we're going to be talking about uh, an issue that has been coming up in the news recently. Uh, it's related to gun control. We're going to be discussing gun control. And also recently, yesterday, was the verdict in the Derek Chauvin murder trial in the killing of George Floyd. So I'm going to most likely make some comments about that as well. All right, so really, uh, it seems like there's a mass shooting every day in this country. And that's something that's really disconcerting is that we're seeing these mass shootings continue to plague the nation. And it's been happening every year, as far as I can remember, that every year it seems to be a different tragedy. And this is something that has been going on for a while now. And if you saw my YouTube channel, if you saw the YouTube video that I did on, on gun control, I talked about some of the measures that are being taken right now by the federal government or being explored by the federal government in order to address this issue. And these measures include an assault weapons ban red flag laws and universal background checks as well as closing the gun show loophole it also can potentially involve a voluntary buyback program these are a number of solutions that uh, the Biden administration thinks can solve the this uh, epidemic of mass shootings. And not all solutions I think would be effective. Some are better for the local level. I think the assault weapons ban would be more targeted towards this, this issue that we're talking about. And it's really a tragedy, it really is. Because many of these things could just be avoided if Congress took action on it. Most notably, what I really want to call your attention to in this episode is it has to do with the assault weapons ban that was passed in 1994 as part of the Violent Crimes Control Act and Law Enforcement Act. And that law really was the result of a tumultuous period it was a product of the times during the 1990s when there was this plateau of violent crime in the country and biden was a proponent of that bill but another provision in that was the assault weapons ban and if you check out that chart that i showed you my YouTube channel that mass shootings tended to go down the the deaths from mass, shoot, mass shootings went down 
during the time of the assault weapons, man. And there's there's people on both sides of this issue. It's a very contentious issue because you have your Second Amendment advocates, you have your gun control advocates, and there's very little in between those two. The NRA is on one side. But we need to come up with a sensible solution to put an end to it because at the end of the day, it's not interest groups that are at stake. It's the lives of our citizens. So that's what we should be keeping in mind. And that's what the federal government should do in order to protect the citizens of this country. So an assault weapons ban, let's get into that. So is it even constitutional to have an assault weapons ban, first of all? Well, I'd say that since it was done before and it wasn't challenged, it'll probably go through again. That doesn't mean it can't be challenged, but it happened already. So if that's um, either reintroduced because the assault weapons ban, that bill had a sunset provision after 10 years and it was not renewed in 2004 because we had the George W. Bush administration and the Bush administration uh, didn't want to act on that because they were Republicans. So obviously they're not going to instate, reinstate that since that's the party line on guns is to be pro second amendment, but you could be pro second amendment and still before sensible common sense gun measures. Now, the assault weapons ban, I think that they should have a compromise. Again, do it for the 10 years. This is my own opinion. Do it for the 10 years. If it works, keep it. If it doesn't, scrap it. If it doesn't work or if it's inconclusive, if it's not effective, that's that's something we shouldn't be doing. But then the Second Amendment advocates will say, well, you're infringing on my right to bear arms because now I can't use these, these firearms to do what I need to do um, in terms of being a law-abiding abiding citizen. Then again, um, we look at the beginning, we go back to the beginning with James Madison. And Madison was very fervent on having the Second Amendment be um, included into the Constitution and the Bill of Rights. And there's many interpretations of the way the Second Amendment is, stands and is written. I personally don't think it's absolute. I think there should be uh, a limit to every right, just like there's, we have the First Amendment, you can't shout fire in a theater, um, you can't threaten people, can't threaten the government officials. I think the Second Amendment, it's not, it shouldn't be legal to carry around an assault weapon, a fully automatic assault weapon, that shouldn't be allowed. The issue with banning assault weapons here is that they can be easily manufactured. They can be easily made, uh, customized. They can be customized. And semi-autos can quickly turn into autos. 
And that's definitely an issue, especially when you combine that with a high-capacity magazine. Uh, I know bump stocks are banned now, but you essentially have a death machine. Just like we have licenses for cars and things like that that are that pose a risk to the public, I think that we should have a gun license and the appropriate training in order to handle that firearm. Now, do I think all guns should be banned? I don't. I, I really don't. I think the Second Amendment is needed. I think it's there for a reason. Um, to protect ourselves, our neighbors, uh, to protect us from government, um, become the government becoming oppressive. Uh, that's perpetuating tyranny. But at the same time, we have to be sensible about what we're allowing on our, because it's the intent is to not go after our law-abiding citizens. I mean, and the legislation has to be written that way as well. The legislation has to be clear if, if they're going to take action on this. It has to be clear not to include uh, people... And we're going to get to this with red flag laws, but because people that are law-abiding uh, feel singled out by it, and and they feel like it's it's stepping on their toes a bit. So then we have, like I said, we have so we have the assault weapons ban, and there was some some evidence that led to a, a decrease in deaths from uh, mass shootings. Then we come to the red flag laws. So the red flag laws really just allow the police or family members to, you know, petition a court to order the firearms removed if they present a danger to themselves or others. And there's a number of states that have red flag laws, mostly on the West Coast, states like California, Oregon, Washington, Virginia. New Jersey, Maryland, Delaware, and others. And the judge must, he needs, he or she needs to decide if the issue that is being looked at is, in, and based on some of the evidence there, some of the documentation, um, some of the statements made by the gun owner, if that constitutes, if that would constitute a removal of the firearms from that person. Now, here's the issue with red flag laws. I think that red flag laws could work, but they need to be very specific. Red flag laws really could cause a slippery slope where if they're being used in such a way to strip law-abiding citizens of their right to uh, carry firearms, then I think red flags, excuse me, red flag laws are a problem. Because you're seizing it without due process. You're, you're essentially saying here, all right, I'm going to make a statement. Uh, this person, I don't think fit to carry a firearm. Uh, they made a few statements to me, like maybe we had a disagreement and it had nothing to do with the firearm. And now I'm going to, I'm going to just say, all right, get rid of those. So that's what I mean by the slippery slope argument that one thing could lead to another thing, uh, be used as a justification for, uh, trampling on the Second Amendment. That's not what we, sh what we should be doing. We should be trying, with, with the red flag laws, we should be trying to protect the community. That's really the purpose of the red flag laws. Those laws are in, pl going to, they're in place to protect the community. 
and and not to use it use it as an excuse in order to get rid of guns from from law-abiding citizens so and so what are some of the situations in which this could be used so in a mental health uh situation where it's deemed that that person uh, presents an immediate danger to the themselves or the community i i think that in that situation if there is enough evidence on there there's enough documentation to um which leads law enforcement to believe that 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 person is a threat in order to petition for that and that's when it should be used but like again not every state has red flag laws so it could be difficult um to assess this as well But there have been some attempts to uh, introduce this legislation federally uh, in terms of red flag laws. Uh, most notably, Kamala Harris, who's now vice president, called for legislation um, related to domestic uh, terrorism in order to restrict that person's access. The issue with that is it comes in with the First Amendment. You know, if you're making statements, is that speech protected? And there's a real gray area there. But what's notable, what's really notable about red flag laws, despite what I just said in terms of being a slippery slope, they really have been upheld against challenges based on the Second Amendment um, in some of these, in some cases here. Now, in the case of Hope v. State uh, in Connecticut, uh, it was found that it did not violate the Second Amendment red flag laws because it doesn't restrict the rights of law-abiding citizens that are responsible. So that was one case in the appellate court and then another one uh, in Heller, which was a landmark, I believe, Heller versus District of Columbia. Uh, and and there's there's a lot of precedent here. There's a lot of legal precedent. And once again, I'm not a lawyer, but I I did examine a few of these cases. But there's legal precedent here to uh, back up red flag laws and their use. I'm not saying they're good or bad. I'm just saying that there's precedent there that allows it to happen. There, there's legal precedent that allows these laws to be there. So those are red flag laws and, and how they're used. Right. So those are two measures that are being used. And then last is universal background checks. And really, those are just to check uh, the person's background during the purchase of a firearm. So the problem is that universal background checks are not required by the federal law, uh, but there's 22 states and the D.C. 
that require background checks for private sales of firearms. So there's no law that has, uh, there's no federal law that has universal background check. The reason for that is we got to make sure that the person is an upstanding citizen and not getting in the wrong hands here. And there's a lot that the government could do. Um, you know, this when we talk about the, like private sale exemption, um, you know, these things happen off the radar, you know, um, they buy things, no questions asked here. Uh, nobody's involved, nobody um, related with the government's involved to that sale. And they, and they don't really have to go through a lot of the screening processes and, and everything else. So that really creates a another loophole. But once again, universal background checks are popular. They're very popular. Uh, what's always popular isn't always right, but that shows there's a demand for universal background checks. And that it should be required uh, federally to make sure, like I said, to make sure that we're keeping these firearms out of the wrong hands. Because in terms of the mass shootings that these firearms are purchased legally, in the case of mass shootings, we're not talking about um, crime in the inner cities. We're talking about mass shootings once again. So... These are some of the things that really are the issues as it relates to gun control. And then just to highlight the gun buyback program, I'm not sure if the government said they were going to do this or not, but this was done before in the past. Um, it's really a program that you know incentivizes uh, gun owners to basically just buy back the firearm that were privately owned. And, you know, this program has really reduced the number of guns that are sold uh, on the street and everything like that. Now, I don't, I don't know the exact effectiveness of a gun buyback program. I didn't think it was very effective, uh, but I'm not, I'm not too sure. Uh, a lot of studies say it's unknown. Uh, it's pretty mixed. So... That's that program there. All right. So now that I've uh, went through that, uh, I want to do make some comments about yesterday's trial, uh, the verdict in the Derek Chauvin trial, officially uh, Derek Chauvin versus the state of Minnesota was the case. And it was the first criminal case broadcast publicly live on TV in Minnesota. And it was a really monumental case because uh, it really shows that cops like that cannot subvert the public trust, cannot use their office in order to endanger the public, um, cannot use the color of the law in order to escape uh, wrongful actions. So justice was served there. Uh, I know a lot of people are relieved 
especially in, uh, you know, minority communities of people of color, uh, due to the trauma and the strife that has been experienced, uh, in the last decade and beyond before that, um, you know, this case is going to assert that, you know, a police officer who is doing wrong cannot get away with that. Can't get away with it. And in this case, Chauvin just went, Chauvin, excuse me, went wrong, a rogue. Uh, in uh, his action, conducting himself with uh, George Floyd. So that really presents an existential problem. I mean, it's more than Chauvin. It's, it's a part of a larger problem, uh, in the criminal, uh, excuse me, in the, um, and the, not the justice system, the, uh, policing, the justice system actually is fine. I mean, there's flaws, but yesterday it was, it produced the right result, in my opinion. Uh, what Chauvin did was absolutely horrific. Should never happen again. I won't be surprised if it did because that's the state of affairs in this country. Uh, but hopefully some more progress will be made on that issue uh, to prevent incidents like that in the future. And I think there needs to be a fundamental retraining of our police in this country. I really think that we police academies really need to focus on de-escalation tactics, tactics. They have to get rid of the excessive firearms training and, and the self-defense training. I think that makes these new officers prone to uh, becoming on the defensive and, and going in these situations and being fearful uh, that something's going to happen to them. Um, and, and I mean, don't get me wrong. Police policing is a very dangerous job. And, um, I wasn't a cop, but I had some relatives that were, um, and it's a dangerous job. Um, but some of the, some of the situations that we saw, and I don't know all the facts yet, so I don't want to make any comments about it if I don't know all the facts. Um, some of the situations that I saw were not, um, customary just from like a, a lay per, like a, um, a lay person's point of view a citizen's point of view, it, it's just, it doesn't. And as a political commentator, it's just, it doesn't, it doesn't make sense to me how some of these atrocities can be done. Kind of boggles my mind um, that we entrust that these training officers are doing their duties, doing their job, and th they have a responsibility to uh, train other new officers in the procedure and if they're doing the wrong thing how can they be held accountable how how do how are the subordinates going to know uh that that's something that's not appropriate i mean even in chauvin's case it was pretty blatant that chauvin was doing wrong there in that situation and they just went along with them and i'm going to refrain from comment on that case um because i think once again justice is going to be served in that case as well so rest assured of that. Uh, I have great confidence in that. But yes, the actions of Mr. Chauvin are inexcusable. 
disdainful and heartbreaking. And it was even really hard for me to watch the trial. It was very difficult for me to get through the trial, um, especially with one of the clips with uh, Mr. Floyd, um, you know, pleading not to be sh uh, shot in his vehicle. Uh, and, I, and I had to just turn away. Um, very difficult time. But we're going to move forward. We're, we're not going to forget that incident. We're never going to forget it. This memory is going to live on uh, in terms of that example that, you know, pr police brutality is a problem. It's an existential problem. Uh a lot of people have to come together in order to talk about that problem, in order to solve the problem. Uh, problems don't go away unless you address them. And this is something that's coming to the forefront. It boils over and it kind of rears its head again uh, time after time. So I do think there's going to be a solution. I think it's going to be a fair solution, uh, but it has to be looked at from a variety of angles in order to come to the right conclusion for everyone involved. So I was elated at that result, that verdict. I was very elated with it. I think they made the right decision. Uh, and I respect any decisions made by a court of law, uh, and especially the jury in that case, uh, a very high-profile case, probably a lot of pressure associated with that result. And certainly it was difficult for the world to watch that, um, the trial, the, the incident. So I pray for our communities. I pray for his family. And I pray for that uh, Chauvin will come to realize that he did wrong in that situation. So that's really what I wanted to say on the verdict. In the, in that case, and I think that is about all for this episode. One of my longer episodes today, but hope you guys enjoyed. Appreciate you all listening, and stay tuned for more content on the channel. I'll have that for you guys soon. I plan to have a new episode for the podcast up, released every month, at least once a month going forward. Uh, things have become busier, so I'm planning to uh, do this once a month. Uh, don't forget, I'm going to be doing Q&As on the channel. I'm going to be doing more open history and everything uh, that you want to see there. So be sure to check that out at Seller Spark Studios on YouTube. Uh, we just hit 1.23K subscribers, so couldn't be more grateful for that. But I'm going to leave it there, folks. And this has been the Seller Spark Show. Sign, my name is Chris, signing off. Until next time, see you guys later.